Amen. Yes, Harvest, you may go ahead and have a seat. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you, worship team. What a good morning it is. Amen? It is. Do you realize that this Sunday morning marks the 14th anniversary of the existence of Harvest Decatur? We have been, yeah. That's for the Lord. That's for the Lord. Celebrate Him for that. He's given us 14 years. We launched in 2008, first Sunday in November of 2008. And God has done so much in this church, through this church in the last 14 years. And I know you, just like I, we look forward to what he's going to do in the years to come. Well, I have to confess that I have a favorite movie. I'm sure we all have favorite movies. And this one, you might think you know what I'm talking about, but this one might take you by surprise. One of my favorite movies is... (laughs) Yes, but no. (laughs) Despicable Me. Despicable Me. If you've seen that movie, you know that Gru, the main character, is a heartless villain with no thought to his fellow man. He only wants to accomplish great acts of evil, such as stealing the moon. That was his mission. Well, the introduction of three young girls into his life has a huge effect on him, and unexpectedly... His desire for all things evil is challenged by his growing affection for his three adopted daughters. And as the movie unfolds, we see his internal struggle between wanting to accomplish his plan to steal the moon and his newfound desire to be a father. Well, spoiler alert, in the end, he realizes family is more important and he changes his evil ways. Redemption. I love that movie because of its redemptive quality. This morning, we're going to talk about redemption. Now, let's define that. What is redemption? Well, Merriam-Webster says that it is to buy or win back or to change for the better. To buy or win back or to change for the better. And I like that definition because when God redeems, he changes something. He buys it back. He makes it better. And God is all about redeeming. God is all about taking something, taking a person, taking a situation, and making it better by changing it from something bad to something beautiful. God is in the business of redemption. Now, redemption and salvation are similar But there's a degree of difference. Salvation, of course, is being delivered from sin and delivered from the sin's consequences, namely hell. Redemption is that, yes, but additionally, redemption is restoring what was lost. Redemption is restoring. God takes that which was lost and he restores it. And oftentimes when he does that, he doesn't just restore it, but he makes it better. That's redemption. We're talking today in Esther chapter 8, and last time we saw how Haman in chapter 7 was unmasked by the queen, and his, his vile plan and the way he manipulated the king comes to light, and he is swiftly executed. What happens next? Well, if you haven't turned there, please turn there with me to Esther chapter 8. Follow along with as I read verse 1. It'll also be on the screen. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. 
And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. This morning, I want to look at three ways God redeems. Three ways that God redeems, and here's your first point from our text, God redeems by writing wrongful acts. God redeems by writing, R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, wrongful acts. In Persian times, when there was a traitor, a traitor to the crown, and he was discovered, that traitor was executed and their estate was confiscated by the crown. So if you betrayed the king, you, you would be executed, but not only that, everything that you owned would be seized by the king, and then the king could do with it as he wished. In fact, Herodotus, the historian, reports of an instance when there was a traitor and his property was confiscated by the king, and the king could do with it as he wished. Haman's property, all that Haman's had, all that Haman had was seized by the king, and whatever happened to Haman, Haman's wife Zeresh and his friends, we have no idea. We've been talking about them for several chapters, and they just kind of disappear from the text at this point. All we know is Haman's estate was taken and it was given to Esther. The king then takes back the signet ring. And you remember this from chapter uh, 3, that the signet ring is the instrument that held the official seal of the king. It had been given to Haman, and now it was taken, and it was given to Mordecai. You might also remember at the end of chapter 2 that Mordecai saves the life of the king. He reveals this situation that had been going on that was a plan to kill the king. Mordecai reveals that and it saves the king's life. But that deed went unacknowledged for years. And then worse yet, we see at the top of chapter 3 that Haman is rewarded and Mordecai is not. But that's changed. Mordecai is now second in command. Just like Joseph, who became second to Pharaoh, Mordecai is second in command of Persia. God redeems by writing wrongful acts. Now, notice here something. The king gives Esther the house of Haman. He was free to do with it as he wished. Esther then gives it to Mordecai. And one, one, two observations I want to make from that. First of all, Mordecai gets the house of the man who tried to kill him. We've seen in our study of Esther, irony after irony after irony. Here it is again. The man who tried to kill him is executed and his estate is given to Mordecai. But there's something else to point out. You know, Mordecai had taken Esther in. Her parents had died years ago and Mordecai had taken her in. She was his cousin and presumably younger cousin. And he cared for her up until the time that she was taken into the palace. Now she gets to care for him. What a beautiful picture that is. God redeems. He takes something that's bad, and he makes something beautiful at it. Do you remember at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph's father Jacob dies, and Joseph's brothers freak out because they think now that their father is gone, Joseph is going to enact his revenge on us for what we did to him. We sold him into slavery. And all this time, our dad's been alive, but now that our dad is gone, that protection is gone, and Joseph is going to enact his revenge. So they actually go to Joseph, and they, and they fall down, and, and they, they tell him, we'll be your servants, we'll be your slaves. And what does Joseph say about all that? He says this in Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, as for you, 
you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God redeems. God redeems. God redeems wrongful acts. Now, I know that everyone in this room has been wronged at some point. Everyone in this room has been wronged in some way at some point, and possibly you faced betrayal. Maybe you were slighted by a friend or a coworker. Maybe you were lied about. Maybe your reputation was tarnished. Maybe there was a rumor about you that damaged you and damaged your relationships. Somehow, you have been wronged in this life. My friends, those wrongs in your life will someday be made right. It could be that God has a plan to restore the ways you've been mistreated. It could be that He is working even now to take that wrong and to flip it so that the truth is made known, the bad is undone, and all is restored. It might be that such a thing will happen in your life. But it could be that you go your entire life without seeing that wrong righted. It could be that the wrongs in your life may not be righted until you leave this earth and step into eternity. The Bible makes no promise that your, your eyes, your physical eyes, will see every wrong be righted. It makes no promise to that end. But one day, God will return, and then every wrong will be made right. Every bad deed will be undone. Every Haman will be defeated and every Mordecai rewarded. That's coming. That's coming. But what do we do in the meantime? What do we do while we wait for the return of the Lord? What do we do while we live in a life that has been marred by the wrongs done against us? We stay faithful. We strive to love even those who wronged us. We strive to forgive those who wronged us. We strive to live at peace with all men, according to Romans 12, 18. We stay faithful. And let me add this. We let God do the writing. He says, vengeance is mine. We let God do his work. Now, that doesn't mean we don't cry out to him in our pain. Of course we do. It also mean we, it doesn't mean we try to restore a relationship. Or we try to speak up when we're wronged. Or even in some extreme cases, perhaps even pursue legal action. But in the midst of it all, we let God do his work. He will right what has been wronged. God will redeem. Our job is to stay faithful to him. God redeems by righting wrongful acts. Now back to our story. Haman, of course, is dead. The enemy of the Jews met his fate, ironically, on the same pole that was meant for Mordecai. Now, normally, when the villain has fallen, the story is almost over. I mean, we're used to that, right? When the villain is defeated, when the villain is captured, when he's defeated in some way, the story is almost over. That happens in most books and most movies that we watch. But here in Esther, we still have a problem. Think back to why did Esther risk her life to begin with in chapter 5? She did it to save her people. That hasn't happened yet. Haman is dead. Yes, he is out of the way, but his work remains. The edict is still in effect. The Jews are still set for slaughter on the 13th day of the month of Adar. 
So what happens next? Look at verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? You might notice in verse 3 that it says, Esther spoke again to the king. Now, it might be easy to miss this, but what's going on here is that she actually goes a second time unbidden to the king. She actually risks her life again. How do we know that? Look at verse 4. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. The only reason the king would hold out the golden scepter is in an instance when a person approaches unbidden. So she does this in our story not once, but twice. And by the way, this tells us we're not quite sure here, but it suggests that there was probably some time that passed between verses 2 and 3, and there's another reason for that. I'll share that here in a minute. But probably some time has passed between verses 2 and 3. She goes in again to the king, unbidden, risking her life, and this time... She doesn't have a cleverly devised plan. She doesn't have a come to my first feast, come to my second feast. She just begs. She falls at his feet. She weeps and she pleads with him to avert this plan. You see what she's asking there? Avert the plan of Haman. Do you see that word avert there in the text? It's actually the same word, the same Hebrew word as the word taken in verse 2, referring to the signet ring. So what she's saying here is, just as the signet ring was taken from Haman, take back his evil plan. Now again, just like before, she receives the king's favor. He holds out the golden scepter to her. And think about that for a moment, because the king, Ahasuerus, he was given to rash anger. And he could have responded, you know, I allowed this once for you to approach me, but I'm not going to do it again. He could have done that, but he doesn't. Once more, he grants her favor. Look at verse 5 again. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people, or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Esther makes this passionate plea to save her people, and notice that she asks for a written order to revoke the letters devised by Haman. She wants this to be revoked. She wants it to be turned back. She wants him to undo what was done. And perhaps, we don't know for sure, but perhaps that explains why she is so passionate about this, because she's begging him to do something he can't do. Notice also, She's, again, careful with her words. We've seen Esther be very careful with her words. She's still careful with her words, even though she's pleading at this point. She's very careful with her words. She's putting all the blame on Haman. 
And, and that's right, because he was the one who manipulated the king. He was the one who came up with this edict. He was the one who had the grudge against the Jews. But you remember that King Ahasuerus approved. He approved this. He didn't even question it. He just approved it and went on with his life. So the king does have a point of blame here, but she doesn't point that out. She puts all the blame on Haman, and the king does the same thing. Look at verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. Everyone's ready to blame Haman, which is right, because you always blame the person that's not there. Verse 8, but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king is se- and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Now, something interesting, you might remember, King Ahasuerus told Esther he would grant her request. Do you remember that? Three times he told her, what is your wish? And I will grant it even up to half my kingdom. He said, I will be generous. What do you want? I will do it. He said that three times to her, but guess what? He can't. He can't do it because the law is that, a, that an edict sealed by the king cannot be revoked. So she's asking him to do something that's not even in his power. Notice in his response in verse 7, he points out what has already been done. He reminds them, I've given you what was Haman's. And in the Hebrew here, the way it's written suggests that the king is actually exasperated at this point. It's almost like he's saying, look, I've done what I can. I gave you Haman's estate. I can't do any more. But the king adds, you may write as you please with regard to the Jews. It's almost like he's saying there, I can't do any more about this, but do as you wish. So what do they do? Verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. To each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and in their language. Now, it's interesting. Do you see where it says there, it hap- this happens in the third month, the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. That is 70 days after Haman's edict. 70 days have passed, and most of that time happened after Haman's death, which is why it's prob- po- probable that between verses 2 and verses 3, a lot of time has passed. Now, we don't know exactly why 70 days. I mean, perhaps it took time for Mordecai and Esther to come up with a plan as to what to do. Perhaps Esther didn't have an opportunity to approach the king until now. We don't know. We just know that 70 days have passed. But just as before, this edict is written to the political leaders, the governors, and the satraps. And it's written to the same provinces as Haman's edict, the 127 provinces, which you might remember were smaller districts within the kingdom. And it was written in everyone's language, just as Haman's edict. This one covers the same area and the same people. But there's one addition. There's one addition to this edict that was not in Haman's edict. It was written to the same people, but this second edict was specifically written to the Jews. Did you catch that at the end of the verse 9? The difference between this edict and Haman's edict is Haman didn't care what the Jews heard. 
But Mordecai specifies the Jews as recipients of this edict. He wants them to hear what he's about to say. And what does he say? Verse 10. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. Isn't it interesting? The same ring that sealed the edict for the death of the Jews is the same ring that seals the edict for their life. Both edicts come from the same seal. Different people, but the same seal. Now, something interesting here about the Persian communication system, it's actually this this courier system with these swift horses is renowned in our history, and it's actually been compared to the Pony Express in our American history. In fact, Herodotus, the historian, comments that there was a saying among these couriers that went something like this, neither snow, rain, heat, or darkness deters the couriers from their task. The origin of that saying goes back for centuries. So they carry this message, and what does it say? Look at verse 11. Saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate, which you'll notice those three words are the same words that Haman's edict said, to destroy, to kill, and annihilate, any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Now, this edict was written to offset the first edict. The first edict removed the Jews from the protection of the empire. It also, you might remember, provided financing for the military action against them. This second edict allowed the Jews to form their own militia groups and, in effect, withdrew the royal protection from their enemies. So all of Haman's supporters, all those who would have loved Haman's edict and have used it to destroy the enemies, are now in a similar situation. The Jews can protect themselves and it won't be looked, like, looked on as rebellion against the kingdom. In essence, what's going on here is that civil war is legalized. Civil war is legalized for one day. Which day? Verse 12. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, the same date as Haman's edict. In other words, on one day, the kingdom is allowed to go to war. Those under Haman's edict are allowed to attack the Jews. The Jews are allowed to defend themselves, and no one need fear punishment from the government. Now, just to point out something really quick, there's a lot of debate over that small phrase in verse 11 that says, children and women included. Do you see that? There's a lot of debate and back, back and forth on this, and, and the argument goes something like this. Was it right for, for Mordecai's edict to extend to the killing of the enemies of the Jews, even women and children? Was that right for him to do that? Now, there are some on one side that said, yes, it was right for him to do that, and, and one of the reasons they would give is that they, they equate this legalized battle within Esther with the conquest of the promised land in the book of Joshua. Now, you may remember, if you've read the book of Joshua, God called the Israelites to destroy the enemies, to destroy the, the, the citizens of Canaan completely. 
men, women, and children. God told Israel to do that, but there was a purpose behind that. God told them he was judging the Canaanites for their wickedness. So all through the book of Joshua, not only is Israel receiving their land, the promised land, but God is bringing judgment upon the Canaanites. So some say, well, what's going on here is similar to that. But others come along and say, no, 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 that's not right. It wasn't right for Mordecai to extend because this isn't the same thing as that. This is not the same thing as the conquest. Those were two completely different things. Well, let me just tell you where I fall on that argument, and I could be wrong. Let me just say that up front. If you read the edict carefully, it's saying that the Jews were granted permission not to attack but to defend. They're granted permission to defend So I believe what's going on here is that when Mordecai wrote women and children, he's clarifying anyone who attacks the Jews, the Jews have a right to defend themselves. So it could be that all men attack. It could be some women attack. It could be even some children attack, depending on the situation. But Mordecai's clarifying no matter who attacks you, you have the right to defend yourself. That's what I believe is going on here. And again, I could be wrong. But if you read the edict, it's clearly an edict of self-defense. The edict is written, it goes out, and look at verse 13. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, just as Haman's. It was issued just in the same way as Haman's decree. It went everywhere that Haman's decree went. Here's your second point from our text. God redeems by redirecting the enemy's plan. God redeems by redirecting the enemy's plan. God redeems. Haman had a plan to annihilate the Jews. God redirected that plan. You remember when David faced Goliath, It was Goliath's plan. It was his idea to call forth a warrior from Israel for him to face. No doubt he assumed he was going to win. God redirected that. When Daniel was thrown to the lions, it was the plan of those jealous of Daniel to have him wrongfully accused and executed. God redirected that plan. Haman's edict could not be unwritten. It could not be undone, but it could be redirected by another edict. It could be countered, would be another way to say it, by a second order from the king. God redeems by redirecting the enemy's plan. Now, let me ask you this. Does our enemy have a plan? You better believe he does. He wants to be God. He's rebelled against God, and he wants all of God's creation to rebel against God. Do you know that one day Satan will gather the armies of the earth to fight against God? And you can read about that in the book of Revelation. I got news for you. The enemy loses. After all, I think it's pretty foolish to go against the being who spoke the universe into existence and can easily speak it out of existence. Nevertheless, he's going to try. God will redirect the enemy's plan. Now, that seems distant, doesn't it? We know Satan will be defeated, but that's future. 
what truth does this passage hold for us today? God redeems by redirecting the enemy's plan, but how does he redirect the enemy's plan today? How does he redirect the enemy's plan in my life? Well, the Bible tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. The Bible tells us that Satan is the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10.10. You know, you've probably heard this, that God loves you and has an incredible plan for your life. That's true, but guess what? Satan hates you, and he has a horrendous plan for your life. He does have a plan for your life. Satan had a plan for Job's life, didn't he? He wanted Job to curse God and die. That was his plan for Job. So Satan has a direction that he wants your life to go, and trust me, you don't want to go down that path. So how is God redirecting the enemy's plan in our lives? Well, first of all, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then God has already redirected Satan's major plan for you. Because I promise you, he didn't want that for you. And if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, then God has already did a major redirection of the enemy's plan for your life. Now, maybe you're sitting there and you haven't made the decision to follow Christ. Maybe that redirection hasn't happened in your life. And if that's you this morning, let me just say, you can hop on board God's plan for your life by confessing your sin to him and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. He forgives our sins. And if you want to know more about that, you can come talk to me. You can come talk to one of our elders after the service. But friends, if you've embraced Christ, then he has redirected Satan's major plan for you. So since that moment, Satan has thrown at you all that he can. He lies to you. He tempts you. He tries to discourage you. And at times, we fall into those traps. We do, all of us. But every time that you realize one of Satan's lies and you embrace the truth, that's God redirecting. Every time you resist temptation, that's God redirecting. Every time you fight discouragement with God's word, that's God redirecting. So let me ask, in what ways may God be working to redirect the enemy's plan today? In your life, what might the enemy be trying to do to get you off track? And how can you hop on board God's plan and let him redirect that? What is God laying on your heart that he wants to redirect in your life? And how can you submit to that? God redeems by writing wrongful acts. God redeems by redirecting the enemy's plan. And finally, your third point, God redeems by restoring his people. God redeems by restoring his people. Follow with me in verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a gold, great gold crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Note the reversal in, we see in these verses from the previous chapters. In chapter 3, Haman's edict caused great mourning among the Jews. 
In chapter 4, Mordecai grieves in the city square clothed in sackcloth and sitting in ashes. Now Mordecai is clothed in royalty. The colors that he wears are colors of royalty. And now the Jews are no longer grieving, but they're rejoicing. This second edict has given hope to the Jewish people. Mordecai is rewarded as second in command. The Jews are celebrating, and as we've seen all through this book of Esther, here's another feast, a feast of celebration among the Jews. And then it says, the fear of the Jews over the second edict caused many people to declare themselves Jews. Now, there's an element of humor to that if you think about it. That's, that's just funny. And there's a debate out there as to, well, was this a real conversion to Judaism or was it just them saying they were Jews? I tend to believe that it's not a genuine conversion. Maybe some of them did. But the last phrase there in verse 14, I think, says it all. It says, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. I believe what was going on here is that there was a shift in power, and the people of Persia recognize it. So out of a desperation to survive, they declare themselves Jews, possibly so they won't even be mistaken as enemies of Jews. It's possible. But God redeems by restoring his people. God redeems by restoring his people. If redemption is taking what was lost and restoring it, then God in our passage takes what was lost, which was the relative peace of the Jews that they had before Haman's edict, and he restores it by granting them hope. Hope is restored to the Jews. Hope that Haman's edict won't end in their deaths. Now, how does God redeem us? You know, everyone in this room has sinned. 1 John 1.10 says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We've all sinned in this room, and as a result of sin, we all have things in our past that we regret. We all have regrets. There are choices that we made that we wish we could go back and undo. But here's the thing. You can't undo the past. The past is written, and it cannot be undone but it can be redeemed. Do you remember when Peter denied Jesus? Do you think he regretted that? Oh, yeah. In fact, in Luke 22, 62, it says that after Peter denied Jesus, he went out and wept bitterly. But what did Jesus do after he rose from the dead? He restored Peter. He restored Peter so much That not long after that, Jesus took this brash fisherman and made him the spokesman for the disciples. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter boldly preaches the gospel and 3,000 people are saved. God restores his people. What about us? You and I have regrets. And some of those regrets are deep. Even the memory of them is painful. And you still may be living with the consequences of those things. Now, I'm not here to condemn anyone. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your sins paid for by the blood. You have, if you have placed your faith in Christ, then the sins done in the past are washed clean. Actually, the sins done in the past, present, and future are washed clean. They don't define you. Christ defines you. However, the memory of the past 
and the consequences we may still live with can haunt us. You know, when I was in college, I have to confess, once I got caught in a lie, I did. I was trying to make myself look good, and I lied about something. And my roommate, who knew the truth, was hurt. He was hurt because he was a part of the lie. And I regret that. I did come clean. Our relationship was restored, yes, but I wish it never happened. I regret that. God restores his people. You know, while we're on earth, God will take whatever we've done. And God will restore it, but he may not fully restore our situation. He has fully forgiven us, yes. But full restoration is coming when Christ comes to set everything right. We may see some aspects of restoration in our life. We may see God taking things from our past and making them beautiful. Yes, he is working. He is always working. But we may not see it to the full until we step into eternity. We may still have to live with consequences of our past. But I want you to take comfort in that whatever is in your past by the blood of Jesus is forgiven. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is in the business of restoring. Now, how? How does God restore? I think mainly God restores us spiritually. God restores us spiritually. In other words, he breaks the power of sin in our lives. He changes us from the inside out. He takes the gospel and he saves people out of deep darkness. I believe that's the main way that God restores. Now, he may step into our situation. He may step into our consequences and reverse them in some ways. He might do that. He might provide something physical. He might provide something material. He may heal a disease. He may restore financial loss. He may reconcile a broken relationship, but those things are not promised in this life. They might happen, but they're not promised. And I believe we can and we should pray for those things, but keep in mind that when God restores, he is more concerned with our spiritual restoration. And don't forget again, let me just say, that everything will be restored at the end. A day is coming, Revelation 21.4, that says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. One day, all of it, regrets, pain, sorrow, all of it will one day be gone. He is coming to restore his people, and that's you, and that's me. Mordecai here in our passage is a picture of what's to come. And did you know something? You and I, like Mordecai here, you and I are royalty. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, we are royalty. We are adopted into the family of God. That makes us royalty. And one day, he will come and bring us into his kingdom. You know, before the fall in Genesis 3, we had perfect harmony with God. We had perfect harmony with each other. And then all that was lost. But my friends... All that will be restored. All of that will be restored. To redeem 
is to restore what was lost. However, I want to point something out. Redemption isn't free. Redemption isn't just something that happens. There is a cost. In order to redeem something, someone has to pay a price. Writing on the topic of redemption, Wayne Grudem says this, when we speak of redemption, the idea of a ransom comes into view. A ransom is the price paid to redeem someone from bondage or captivity. Redemption can't just be given because sin has to be atoned for. God can't just turn a blind eye to sin because He's holy. Sin has to be atoned for. You know, just as the first edict condemned the Jews, God, in Genesis 3, declared death to humanity as a result of sin. However, just as the new edict brought hope and life, so Jesus brings hope and life and restoration to those who believe. And both the condemnation and redemption were declared by the same God, just as the same signet ring sealed the edict of death and the edict of life. We were doomed, deserving nothing but death, but Jesus came to redeem us. And it is the death and resurrection of Jesus that pays our penalty and restores us to Him. And it's out of that that you and I can rejoice and hope and find the strength to live this life. In one of his sermons, John MacArthur shares about a book that he would read as a boy. And in this book, the main character builds a small wooden boat. MacArthur goes on to say this. The boy got some pieces of wood, and he carved them out and glued them together and made a little boat and put a little mast on it and made a little sail and attached it to the boat and worked very hard with his little tools and produced to him what was a very special little sailboat. He painted it the way he wanted, and he went down to the lake to sail it. It was carried along, however, by a strong breeze and eventually got beyond his reach and then was out of sight. He was sad, of course, about losing this little prize of his own craftsmanship. And later, walking through the little town he lived, he noticed the boat for sale in a window. He went in and he told the shopkeeper that it was his, and he, he tried to lay claim to it, but the shopkeeper didn't believe him and told him that he'd have to pay for it. He'd have to buy back the very boat that he had made with his own hands. So he went home. He broke open his piggy bank, and he found that he had just enough money. So he returned to the shop, put the money on the counter, and bought back his little boat. And it was surely his then, twice his, because not only did he make it, but he redeemed it. That's what Jesus did for you and for me. He redeems us by paying the debt we owed, but it gets even better because he offers us eternal life where he will right every wrong, redirect the enemy's plan, and restore his people. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. We give thanks and praise for you 
who loves us deeply, who works redemption in our lives, both now and forever. Jesus, we know that you paid the cost. You paid the cost that redemption needed. And because of that, we can be taken from something bad and made into something beautiful. God, each of us has regrets. Each of us has sins. Each of us have things in our life, hurts and wounds, that we cannot recover from without your amazing work of redemption. So come, Lord Jesus. Do your work in our lives. And out of that, let us be agents who speak of your redemption to others. We praise you and we thank you in the great and awesome name of Jesus. And all God's people said, 